The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, a multi-million dollar post-presidency book deal hasn't always been the norm for an ex-president. Believe it or not, there was a time when who wrote what didn't really matter. It was more about the importance of the document and ultimately the effect it had on advancing the nation. But times have certainly changed, and so has the appetite to know who said what, where, when. We'll uncover the surprising history of presidential autobiographies from the White House and beyond. That's coming up next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn with the National Museum of American Presidents. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Our guest for this episode on presidential authors is Craig Fairman. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and he's also been a guest on NPR's Morning Edition and All Things Considered. He's put together two really good books on the literary prowess of the men who have lived in the White House. One is called The Best Presidential Writing, which is a collection of presidential works from the Founding Fathers on. And the second is a book he wrote called Author-in-Chief, The Untold Story of Our Presidents and the Books They Wrote. Craig, you're obviously the man to talk to when it comes to presidential words of wisdom. Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Craig, I want to start with a general question. What led to your interest in presidents as writers? Believe it or not, it started all the way back in 2008. Um, that was obviously an election year like like the one we just lived through. Uh, and it was, a, it was a really exciting election. But but one thing that made it so exciting were books by candidates. There was, you know, John McCain had best-selling books, but but really Barack Obama's books, especially Dreams from My Father, were right at the center of the American American conversation and the American election. It, it really felt like his books were essential to what made him such an exciting candidate. And I'm somebody who's always loved presidents and history, but I've also always loved books. And I just thought that was so cool, and it, and it just made me curious. And I wondered, well, has this happened before? So I started digging in, and I quickly realized nobody had ever really written about this comprehensively before. But once I started just making lists, you know, how many presidents had written books, were those books bestsellers, or were they important during specific elections, I realized that there was this incredibly rich story that had never been told, and that it was a really long story, too, that, you know, some of the important presidential books came from people like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. So I had this great, long story story that hadn't been done. And, and the more I dug into it, the, the more I learned and the more I was excited to share. Well, you tell that story really well. And at the beginning of Author-in-Chief, you go back to Thomas Jefferson, an amazing writer, a lover of books, as we all know. His notes on the state of Virginia figures very prominently in Author-in-Chief. Can you tell us why that book was written, the impact it had, and what it can tell us about Thomas Jefferson? Well, I, I think it was written, honestly, because Jefferson wanted to write a book. He, what he needed was an excuse or a cover to be able to write a book that, that he'd been thinking about for a long time. So to, to kind of explain that, we need a little bit of context. And that's that this idea of being an author was really different in Jefferson's time than it was in our time. And, and the example that I think tells us most clearly is the Declaration of Independence, famously written by Jefferson. You know, all of us, 
little kids in school know that Jefferson wrote that today. But in Jefferson's own time, no one even really thought that the, that the Declaration needed an author. No one gave Jefferson credit for that until decades after the Declaration was, was promulgated. It's because people just didn't really think about authorship in the same way, and that was especially true for politicians. If you were running for president and you wrote a book or you even went out and gave a campaign speech, those were seen as disqualifying acts which sounds crazy today because today, you know, the best way to run for president is to get as much attention and be as outspoken as possible. But it was the opposite back then because there were different standards on what made someone, you know, a good candidate and what would make someone a good president. People sort of followed the George Washington model of being called to serve and and, and being deferential. And so for all those reasons, even though Jefferson, like you said, was a very literary person and, and wanted to write, he couldn't really write. But he got he got a lucky break, which was that uh, French diplomat sent out this list of questionnaires that said, you know, I want to know about these colonies. We're thinking about helping you guys in the war against England. What can you tell me on these questions about different colonies? So Jefferson was governor of Virginia at that time, and he volunteered to answer the Virginia section of those questions. But he also really reworked the questions. He chose not to answer some questions. He invented other questions. And he ended up writing this sprawling and really ambitious book that was really a chance for Jefferson to riff on all the things he was interested in, whether poetry, education, um, geography. And he really got a chance to make the case not just for Virginia, but for America and, and sort of say, this is what America is like. This is why America matters. This is why it's time to take America seriously right now. And so on that front, the book was a huge hit. You know, America was seen as kind of a backwards country by, by European people, not just in England, but elsewhere. But Jefferson's book was read and reviewed all over the continent, and it really made America the case that America was a, was a, a nation on the rise. Probably the biggest impact, though, is you can kind of divide this into two strands. The first is that during Jefferson's own time, it was his writings about religion that really caused a stir. So he wrote in kind of an agnostic tradition where he said that, if, you know, if somebody has religious views, that shouldn't matter to you and that shouldn't matter to the government because that's a matter of the heart. That's a personal matter. Mm -hmm. And that was very controversial to say in, you know, in the time that Jefferson was writing. And so those those sound bites came back to Biden when he ran for president in 1796 in 1800. And the reason was because people didn't campaign, as we'd already talked about. So Jefferson's not going out and giving speeches. There's kind of this vacuum. And so Jefferson's opponents use his book against him because he has at least written this book. And I, I found in old newspaper clips stories where people would stand up at, at town halls and read from Jefferson's book. And the people who were attacking him would cite page numbers and the people who were defending him would cite different page numbers. And this book was right there at the center of a of wow. political debate. And, you know, people were arguing for their side just as they would today. And, and but the, the other thing I want to say real quick about this is that the other important legacy of his book is just the way he talks about race. And that's that wasn't controversial at the time necessarily, but certainly in the 19th century when a lot of people in the South would use Jefferson as kind of a defense for their, for their um, system of slavery. And then even more today when we've become more critical and, and, and understand more of Jefferson's uh, Jefferson shortcomings, he wrote about slavery in a way that it's really hard to read today. You know, mm -hmm. he, he was somebody who claimed to like science and he tried to use a scientific style, but frankly, he was just justifying his own prejudices and his own biases. And, and he wrote in a really dehumanizing and degrading way about, about the slaves that he owned and about black people more generally. He said that they were inferior to white people and it was because of who they were, not because of any system around them or anything like that. And so those passages weren't the big ones at the time. It was the religious ones, but those are certainly the reasons people still talk about notes today. And 
you know, in both cases, I think the passages mattered so much because Jefferson wrote them in a book and, and we know that, you know, they were, he spent time saying exactly what he meant to say. Well, as an archivist at heart, I've really enjoyed your discussion, continuing on Jefferson for a moment, about the publication of his papers, of his private documents. Those were the first time, I think, a president's private documents have been made public. Could you describe for our listeners how those four volumes came to be and how they really affect it forever, how we study the presidency? So, so those came out, came out in 1829, a couple years after Jefferson died. And for the same reason that, you know, you weren't really supposed to write a book while you were running for office, you wouldn't really want to write an autobiography. That didn't mean people didn't do it. It's actually surprising to a lot of people that four out of America's first five presidents at least tried to write their autobiography, even if they didn't finish it. But they were all operating under the idea that Benjamin Franklin, another very famous autobiographer, had, which was that these books would come out after they passed away. So after Jefferson passed away, his, uh, his estate was in a lot of debt. In no small reason, because he liked to buy lots and lots of books. And so the the family had different approaches to take care of this. One was auctioning off Jefferson's slaves. Again, there, there's no separating him from this the system of the South and, and the you know, the system of American politics at that time. But another was that they decided, well, let's let's put out an edition of his kind of private documents. And, and this shows how people were starting to think now in the 1820s in a way they didn't in the 1770s. They were starting to think, well, Documents have authors. Authors are at the center of what's happening here. And so they wanted people wanted to see what Jefferson had to say. And, and the big selling point was his autobiography. Um, the, their first plan Jeff, for Jefferson's family was to publish the autobiography by itself. And so they actually got James Madison to write a preface for the book. Smart, smart choice by them, right? Yeah. I would, I, who wouldn't want to have James Madison write a preface <laughs> for the book? And they, they couldn't quite make it work. But they decided instead to do a four-volume set, which included the autobiography, it included uh, some memos, it included a lot of Jefferson's letters. And so when this came out, it was just, it was an enormous hit. And and it's important, I think, to think about it because it shows, first of all, that political books have always been about money, at least a little bit. You know, the whole reason Jefferson's family worked so hard to bring up these books is because they needed the money. And that's certainly true today when presidents get tens of millions of dollars for their books. But I also think it speaks to just this deep desire among Americans to sort of know, you know, what did our greatest leaders think? Why did they do what they did? What was their reasoning? What's their defense for their mistakes? And that's why Jefferson's book were, were such a big hit, and, and not just in America, but, but all over the world. There was a reviewer in England who said this is one of the most important books to ever appear in world literature. This was in the 1830s when that person wrote that. So not many people know about this, these volumes today, but at the time, they were, they were a seismic literary and historical event because people wanted to know more about Jefferson and to start to get that behind-the-scenes look at the presidency and, and how, you know, great presidents were able to achieve their greatness. Now, as you note, autobiographies are one way that presidents have reached out to the public, and you detail those, as you've noted, from the they were there from almost the very beginning of the nation. One I would like to dig a bit deeper on today is one of my favorites, but it's relatively unknown, and it's an early autobiography by Ronald Reagan called Where's the Rest of Me?, been a fan of that book for so long now. Can you summarize for our listeners when he wrote that book, what it covered, and why it was important in his rise to political power? Sure. Well, it's, it's great to find another fan of that one because yeah. that's not a, not a very well-known book, yeah. and it's, it's, it's been out of print for a long time. Um, but it's, 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 I think, a really revealing book. It's a lot of fun to read, and it really it's one of the best places to start if you want to understand Ronald Reagan and how he saw the world. 
So the time frame for this, and, and I'm, I know this confidently because I actually found letters in Reagan's handwriting that no Reagan biographer had seen before mm. about the book. And so it started in the 1960s when his acting career and his time on the GE show on TV were kind of coming to an end. And so he needed something to do. And an agent said, well, hey, why don't you write a book? And the book that people were interested in him writing was sort of about communism in Hollywood and how he dealt with that with the various strikes and, and the labor movement and that kind of thing. But Reagan was a savvy guy. He was, he was a big fan of books. He's actually a, a very sincere and passionate reader in a way that, that he doesn't always get credit for. And he was you know, already sort of thinking about his next step and, and whether that might be a political step. And so he said, yeah, I'll write a book. But he pivoted to write a kind of broader autobiography about his life. And he worked really carefully with a, a ghostwriter, a guy named Richard Hubler, who was a, a talented journalist at the time. And I really want to emphasize here that Reagan worked very hard on this book. You know, when I was looking at their letters, I remember finding uh, letters with Reagan's, you know, stationary from Pacific Palisades, his home there, where he talked, he was out sitting beside the pool. And he was, you know, Hubbler had asked him to clarify a question. And Reagan wrote pages back to him, not just clarifying the question, but Re Reagan wrote a timeline of the specific events they were talking about in the margin of the letter. That, that shows how seriously Reagan took the book. And yes, he worked with the ghostwriter, but he also worked hard himself. And, and it was his book. And he gave a lot of himself, both in access and in time, which is a reason why it was so revealing. But the other thing is, that makes it interesting is just the timing that we mentioned earlier. It came out in the 1960s. Uh, in 1965, it was published right before he ran for governor. But that also lets you know that he finished that book before any political consultants showed up to sort of help him run for governor. A lot of the biographies of Reagan talk, and, and rightfully so, about how political consultants sort of helped bring him up to speed on issues and helped him understand the right way to pitch his conservative ideals. And, and there's some truth to that. But this book and, and the letters that take us behind the scenes with it show that Reagan had kind of figured this out before the political consultants showed up. He wasn't, you know, an actor repeating lines the way his critics would so often say. He was somebody who was closer to a screenwriter writing the lines himself. And so he figured out how to, you know, make his life story seem important and like good preparation for running for higher office. But he also figured a way to kind of, you know, tell funny, optimistic stories that offered the perfect, uh, you know, kind of rhetoric to pair with his own conservatism. And he did that himself in this book, and, and it was a big bestseller. It's, it's not well known today, but it was a huge bestseller at the time. One of his opponents, when he was running for governor in California, carried a copy of the book around and, and you know, would say, well, what about this passage? What about this passage? Sort of the same thing that happened with Thomas Jefferson, right? But, you know, the book helped Reagan more than it hurt him. They, when, when one of those political consultants finally showed up and wanted to give Reagan some, some repetition and some practice talking in front of people, they just used book signings to do it. I actually interviewed this political consultant, and he, he remembered that Reagan came to a book signing in Los Angeles, and he, he, the consultant said it looked like he had just come from his ranch. He had on, you know, he had on the, uh, the, the riding breeches, and he had on the spurs and everything but the whip. <laughs> but despite that outfit, you know, Reagan, the author, charmed the crowd. People loved him. He told the stories, and you could just see that he had the skills to communicate the ideas, but also that the ideas were his own. And I know I started my career years ago as an archivist at the Reagan Library. It's in L.A. before sure. I moved into the permanent facility in Simi Valley, and one of the books we all read to get to know him better was Where's the Rest of Me? So you're right. It's, it's a ter terrific introduction to Ronald Reagan. I'll also say to our listeners, Reagan wrote out so many things. And as an archivist at the Reagan Library, I saw a lot of those, including in the 70s, he was a radio commentator. And we 
had a lot of those kind of legal pads of him writing out those radio addresses of his own. So you see those ideas coming from his pen onto his paper. Pretty amazing. So right, with that aside, my, my <laughs> wonderful days in, in Los Angeles. Let's move on now, Craig, to Ulysses Grant. His memoirs are often praised as the greatest uh, memoirs by any president. I've always been so impressed with them. There's a great version, a couple annotated versions out now. I know of those memoirs, one edited by our good friend John Marzalek at the Grant Library Museum. For those listeners who may not have heard the story, could you just summarize for us the circumstances of Grant's writing of his memoirs and how the great writer Mark Twain played a role in that? I, first, let me second you in, in, in praising John's work and John's edition. It's, it's the best way to read Grant's book today. And John, of course, edited the, the complete papers of, of Grant, which are more than 30 volumes and were just such a helpful resource for me. I still had to go back and look at some of Grant's drafts, which were at the Library of Congress, but still having all his letters and documents with the, mm-hmm. that annotation, um, they did wonderful work. And that's the kind of stuff that, that any historian like myself, you know, is, is indebted to. But yeah, Grant's Grant's book is generally, you know, when, when somebody says what's the best presidential book, Grant's is, is the most popular answer. And I, I always question that a little bit because it's not really a presidential book. Yes, it's a book written by a president, but it focuses on the Civil War, not really on Grant's administration. But that said, I can't question the quality of the book. It, it's, it's a wonderful book and, it, and it's a fabulous read. And a lot of times people sort of want to put Mark Twain at the center of the story. I actually remember being at the Truman Library and looking through unpublished interviews with Truman. Mm. And Truman talked about Grant's memoirs and said, of course, Mark Twain wrote those. But <laughs> that's just simply not true. You, even Harry Truman, I think he was trying to give Missouri a little bit too much credit and, and give Mark <laughs> Twain a little too much credit. Right, but right. <laughs> this was this was 100% Grant's work. And, and that's why studying those documents at the Library of Congress, you, you know, you could literally see in his handwriting that when he first started writing his book, you know, the handwriting is kind of cautious. He's crossing out a lot of words. He's sort of questioning himself. And the further he gets going, the more the handwriting gets bold and the storytelling gets confident because Grant's a, Grant was an excellent writer. But he, he didn't really want to be a writer. So the, the first thing to say is that, you know, we talked about how for a long time presidents felt like they couldn't publish books during their own lifetime, that there was sort of a, a convention against it, that it was seen as too arrogant. What changed all that was the Civil War. The Civil War was such an important event for a lot of reasons in American life. But one of them was that everybody became that much more obsessed with history. They, you know, they just lived through this, this terrible uh, conflict, and they wanted to understand you know, the people who made the decisions. Why did they done what they'd done? And so somebody like James Buchanan becomes not the first president to write an autobiography, but the first president to publish one during his lifetime. And it wasn't just Buchanan. You know, publishers were trying to get Robert E. Lee to write a book, although he never he never followed through. Um, Jefferson Davis published his memoirs. William uh, T. Sherman published his memoirs. These books by famous generals and famous politicians were everywhere after the Civil War in a way that they weren't before. The Civil War, interestingly, is really what changed everything in terms of these kinds of books. And so... The biggest fish in all this is Grant. You know, he's not just the most important general. He was a former president, too. And publishers, including Mark Twain, who had a publishing company, tried to get him to write it. But Grant just said, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't really see myself as a writer. What changed it, again, is money. Uh, Grant had some investments go go badly uh, in, through a firm that his son was involved with. And Grant ended up bankrupt. So his family needed the money. And he could get a lot of money from writing first magazine articles and then a book. Once Grant started working on this, he had a second blow, which is that he had, you know, a pinching feeling in his throat that quickly turned out to become a, a fatal form of cancer. 
So Grant did not have enough money to pay his grocery bills, and Grant was dying from cancer in, in a really gruesome fashion. Despite those two pressures, or, or maybe because of them, because they certainly focused him and, and, and inspired him to work hard and work quickly, he wrote this magnificent book. And, and I really try to take the time in my book to tell the story of it. It was a time when everybody in America was paying attention to this. You know, you could open a newspaper in the 1880s and there would be headlines like General Grant went for a walk today. General Grant did not sleep well last night. General Grant wrote three more pages. That's how much people cared about his writing and cared about him being able to finish despite these, you know, despite these troubles that he was dealing with. And so he worked on the book and the book, the writing was going well. He kind of gained his confidence, figured out how to do what he wanted. And that's when Twain showed up and, and sort of made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Grant had been working with a magazine that had a publishing firm attached to it. And, and they kind of thought he was going to do the book with them. But Twain offered him a better deal and Grant needed the money. So where we do need to give Mark Twain a lot of credit is, is in his salesmanship. He created this army of, of subscription booksellers, a lot of them former soldiers on, in the Union, who would go door to door all across the country. And there was a script written for them by Twain and his, uh, and his co-workers where they would just knock on the door and somebody would answer and the salesman would say, I'm here to talk to you about the book by Grant that you've heard so much about in the papers. Mm. And so because of these kind of traveling salesmen, which were really important because in the 19th century, you know, bookstores were in big cities on the coast. There were not a lot of bookstores in smaller towns and books were expensive. Books were hard to transport. So having people go door to door to sell it and talk about it was really important. And they ended up making, you know, selling hundreds of thousands of copies of this book. It was, it was one of the biggest bestsellers in American history to that point. And if you adjust the amount of money that Grant made from it, thanks in large part to Mark Twain's savvy, uh, savvy salesmanship, it's the equivalent of a $10 million paycheck today. So Grant didn't just write a fantastic book. He wrote a book that, uh, that provided for his family and sort of offered his version of history. Um, and Mark Twain helped him get it in as many hands as possible. It is a wonderful read. I remember the first I time it. I went through it, though, I, I was shocked. It doesn't say a word about the presidency. It's all, right all up to that, yeah. but it is it is amazing. Very so, brief about his childhood. Right. And it gets mm-hmm. right into that. Although the childhood parts are great, too, I oh, think. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot. You wish there was more. Yeah. Yes, right. absolutely. The Reflections of Lincoln, JFK, and Nixon. That's straight ahead. But first, a reminder, we want to hear from you. Send us a note at AmericanPOTUS.com. Facebook, or Twitter. Your comments and suggestions are as welcome as a positive approval rating. Plus or minus the margin of error, of course. Seriously, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. So let's talk about Abraham Lincoln. I think no president is more associated in our popular memory with books and with writing than Lincoln, which you know is very ironic. He had very little formal education, very modest upbringing, can you give us your thoughts on the role of books in Lincoln's life and how, you note in Author-in-Chief, when he ran for the presidency, he pioneered a new form of campaign biography? I'm, I'm glad you asked because this is my favorite chapter uh, favorite <laughs> chapter in the book. And it, and it was honestly one of the biggest surprises to me because I, I thought I knew a lot about Abraham Lincoln. I did not know that he had written and published a best-selling book that helped him win the White House. So that, I think that's uh, going to really stand out to readers when they get the full behind-the-scenes story there. Now, we do all know, like you said, that Lincoln is bookish, but I I really think it's impossible to overstate how much books meant to him. It's not just that he was a self-made man who, you know, used books to kind of broaden his horizon. 
I think it's pretty clear that Lincoln saw books as a tool to build not just people, but nations, that, that mm-hmm. printing and the printing press and the mass distribution of books were the most important rhetorical tool for, for democracy in his time and, and arguably just as much today. And, and the reason I, I believe that is this amazing lecture that Lincoln gave. It's, it's not one of his greatest hits by any stretch, but it's, he gives this lecture on inventions and discoveries. And lecturing was, of course, a big thing in the 19th century. Emerson would do it. Charles Dickens came over from England to do it. And people would love to go out to these lectures and, and hear people talk. The Lincoln-Douglas debates sort of fits in that tradition as, as well. In this lecture that, that Lincoln gave, he talked about kind of like, what, what are the biggest technological discoveries that the human race has made? And why does the rate of discovery seem to be speeding up? Why are we having breakthroughs more and more? And, and the, the lecture is a little bit dry. It's a little bit, you know, kind of, well, here was the telegraph and here were iron tip tools and that kind of stuff. But it sort of changes when Lincoln talks about one technology, and that's the technology of printing. Mm-hmm. And the word that I just – I remember reading this, this lecture and just it being such an epiphany for me. Lincoln said that, that books, printed matter, can emancipate the mind. Mm-hmm. And that's not a word you would use lightly in the 1850s. I mean emancipation as a metaphor, yeah. it, it was one of the most hotly contested and important issues of emancipating you know, the slaves in the South. And so I think that word choice showed how much Lincoln cared about books. And the other thing that shows it is how much work he did to bring his own book out. Now, he didn't really get credit for this at the time, because remember, there were still sort of these, this is before the Civil War. And so the idea that somebody running for president would publish their own book, that, that might hurt their case more than help their case, because it would be seen as kind of, you know, over-the-top political ambition. But what Lincoln did is quietly in private, he gathered the transcripts of the Lincoln-Douglas debate. And I kind of go into more detail in the book because it's a, it's a pretty crazy story. But, you know, today, if we want to read what somebody said who was running for president or running for senator, we just Google it. Couldn't do that in the 19th century. You know, they were lucky enough that their transcripts were being published in newspapers and then they'd be forgotten about a couple days later. But Lincoln thought that the Lincoln-Douglas debates weren't just relevant to 1858 when he ran for the Senate to Douglas and lost. He thought they could be relevant in two years when he ran for the presidency. So Lincoln gathered those transcripts, which is, took a lot of work. He edited them very carefully, put them together in a book, and then he tried to find a printer, which took some time as well. But he eventually found somebody to publish these books, that published the book and the transcripts, both his side and Douglas's side. And it came out just in time to help Lincoln at the uh, at the convention when he won the Republican nomination. And then it became a huge bestseller over the summer of 1860 when Slavery, which, of course, was the defining issue of those debates, was also the defining issue of the presidency as well. And it's just I I spent a lot of time going through old newspapers and looking at how often people mention these books because it's really been lost. Even even if you read a great Lincoln biography, you're not going to find much about this book. But the book was everywhere at its time. There was a a bookstore in Chicago where they put out a seven foot tall stack of Lincoln's book, The Political Debates, it was called. And by the end of the day, the stack was gone and they had to order more because everybody wanted to read what Lincoln had said, what Douglas had said, and, and sort of, you know, make an informed choice as a voter themselves. And I think that's why Lincoln believed in books and thought books were valuable, because when he was growing up in the middle of nowhere on the Indiana frontier, books were his access to ideas, to, to bigger things. And he understood on a human level and on an intellectual level that books with his words could do that for other people as well. So that's why he put his speeches together in that book, made it a huge bestseller in 1860, and, and I really believe that book helped carry him to the White House. I think no president has um, 
help create more books afterwards by, <laughs> yeah, by authors. And like, if you go to the Peterson House in Washington, I, I guess the exhibit's still there where they had the books stacked on the floor uh, that had been written about Lincoln, and it goes up mm-hmm. the entire length of the staircase as you go up several oh, wow. floors. It's it's a pretty impressive display. Wow. wow. Yeah, it's staggering. But, you know, I mean, what a fitting tribute, too, because oh. no, no president would have appreciated that more than him. Yeah, very much. So you give a very interesting analysis, I think, uh, jumping out of the JFK, uh, about the importance of his book, Profiles and Courage, and his run for the presidency. You say that book gave him a literary aura, but you come down mm-hmm. squarely on the side of those who say that the, the real author of that book was, was Mr. Sorensen, Ted Sorensen. Now, we're interviewing mm-hmm. soon Frederick Logoval. He has a great new, great biography on JFK, and he claims kind of the opposite, that Profiles was more of a collaboration with a lot of the work being jump, done by JFK. So can you tell us why you believe as you do, and maybe more fundamentally, why do we still debate this issue today? Well, let me first say that, that um, Logoval's book is, is, is wonderful, and he's not the only person who's sort of said maybe we should give Kennedy a little bit more credit. Mm-hmm. I think that tells you kind of the pendulum nature of presidential biography, where you know, a previous generation of Kennedy biographers had really amplified Sorensen's claim. And mm-hmm. so now the current generation is like, well, maybe you've gone a little bit too far. It's kind of that back and forth that we see in, in politics mm-hmm. and political biography, too. So I understand where he's coming from. Yeah. But I mean, frankly, I just I don't think that the archival record bears that out. I spent a lot of time at the Kennedy Library. I went through thousands and thousands of pages of this because, I mean, it's a small question, right? How much did Kennedy have to do with his book? Mm-hmm. If you're writing a biography of Kennedy, you're going to spend more time on the Cuban Missile Crisis, as you should. Right. But I wasn't writing a biography of Kennedy. Mm-hmm. I was writing a book about presidents and their books. So I really felt like I had the time to look at, you know, I looked at the dates on the drafts of the book, compared those to Sorensen's schedule and Kennedy's schedule. I reviewed their memos, their letters. Kennedy has handwritten notebooks and, and his handwriting is just atrocious. <laughs> so that was a real slog to review. Uh, but I thought it was important to do. And there are a few surviving recordings um, of Kennedy dictating about the book too. And, and that's the only thing that we can't know for sure is that there were other dictations that Kennedy gave on the book. And then of course, Sorensen and he spoke on the phone a lot because during the, during the main time the book was put together, Kennedy was in Florida recuperating from two back surgeries Sorensen was in Washington, D.C., doing the kind of legwork of the book. So there is something we will never be able to know. But from the thousands of pages that we do have, I think it's conclusive that this was mostly Ted Sorensen's work. Right. Um, let's start with the simple question of who did the book come from? Who, who's the idea? Even Kennedy biographers who have said, you know, Kennedy didn't have that much to do with it, said, well, you do have to give Kennedy credit for the idea. You know, he did come up with the idea. And that's just not true. There is a letter from Ted Sorensen to Kennedy where where Kennedy had said, we should write a magazine article about political courage. And and what we should write it means is you should write it. (laughs) So Sorensen writes the draft, does the research, sends in this article. But in that letter, Sorensen says, you know, I think there's more than an article here. I think this could be a really good book. It's clearly 100% Ted Sorensen's idea to turn this magazine article into a book. And so from there, while Kennedy's recovering, Sorensen is the one who's doing the work. And I mean, Kennedy, frankly, put Sorensen in a pretty tricky situation. Sorensen's wife was extremely pregnant, and so he had a lot going on at home. But he was spending seven days a week in the office in Washington, getting books from the Library of Congress, doing the research, writing these drafts, sending them to Kennedy for feedback. And Kennedy was a really good editor. I mean, I I do want to – Kennedy had literary talent. I'm not trying to dispute that at all. And Kennedy would give him advice. I, I remember looking through all these thousands of pages. I found an early draft where a paragraph in the middle of one of the chapters, Kennedy just puts brackets around it and writes next to it first 
And then in the next draft, that's then fleshed out and it becomes the opening to the chapter. It's a really great opening and it really sets the scene. Hmm. So let's give Kennedy credit for that. But it's also clear that the person who moved that forward in the draft, who had written the first draft, who did the research to amplify that moment, it wasn't Kennedy, it was Sorensen. So there are just so many examples like that 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 make it clear to me that Sorensen did, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the work on the book, at least in the stuff that that we can access today. Now, I do want to say one other thing, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like, well, why does this matter? It doesn't matter in terms of the book. You know, if, if Kennedy was happy to say it was a collaboration, then I would have no problem with him using a collaborator. I mean, George Washington used Alexander Hamilton to write the farewell address. That doesn't mean the farewell address is not an important speech. I'm, I'm pretty pro ghostwriter, to be honest with you. But what matters is that Kennedy wanted that literary aura you mentioned. Kennedy wanted to get the credit for literary work, even if he never wanted to do the work himself. So it's not just that Kennedy had a book ghostwritten for him. It's that Kennedy did get involved and this is what's so ironic. There's not a paper trail of Kennedy working on the book, but there's a hell of a paper trail of Kennedy trying to get credit for the book and promote the book. <laughs> and so I found documents at the Kennedy Library that, that no biographer had seen before where Kennedy personally worked to get his book, The Pulitzer Prize. So it's not, you know, if Kennedy had just been fine with a best-selling book that somebody else had written for him, that's great. That's lots of politicians do it. The book wouldn't have been a bestseller if it had Ted Sorensen's name on it. It needed the Kennedy Kennedy imprimatur. But that wasn't enough for Kennedy. He wanted the literary fame. And there, you know, my chapter goes into a lot of detail about this, but he really got Sorensen to lie for him under oath to help him kind of preserve this myth that he had written the book. Kennedy would carry around these handwritten pages where if any journalist would say, well, I heard you didn't write the book, you know, the journalist might want to ask him important questions in his role as senator of Massachusetts. And Kennedy would say, no, we're not talking about that. Let's talk about my book. Hmm. Because Kennedy just had this obsession and this need for literary fame. And I mean, that's a character question, right? I mean, it's not the Cuban Missile Crisis, but if you don't do the work and then work really hard to get credit for it, credit you didn't deserve, that's, you know, that's not a life or death situation. That's not the fate of nations, but it tells you something about Kennedy as a person. And, and that's why I thought that chapter was important. I have, uh, I've known a few people like that, Scott. I don't know about you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I found one thing where I'm finally Kennedy-esque. I have horrible handwriting. So I, I do identify there you with go. Jack in yeah. that. Yeah. Yes, you do. Right. I can attest to that. <laughs> so let's talk about one of Jack Kennedy's friends and political opponents, Richard Nixon. We know he wrote a lot of books, Nixon did, and particularly post-resignation, he used those books mm-hmm. as part of his effort to become an elder statesman, to kind of reemerge back into our political society. So how did he and maybe others, I know Jimmy Carter has written a ton of books after his presidency, how did they use those post-presidential writings to enhance or reclaim their reputations? Well, this kind of brings us up to the modern moment, I think. We, we've talked about you know, how Lincoln worked on books, how Jefferson worked on books, but really starting around Harry Truman and his presidential memoirs, which are a really important book and a big bestseller, even though they're not widely discussed today. That, that's when we kind of get into the moment that we're still in right now with President Obama's memoirs you know, dominating so much media coverage now. And so what Nixon did very smartly and what Carter has done as well and George W. Bush has done as well is they, they use this post-presidential moment as a, as a time to write books, which make them a lot of money, but it also kind of gives them an excuse to go quiet a little bit. You know, it's, 
you didn't hear a lot from George W. Bush while he was working on his presidential memoirs. He wasn't weighing in on current affairs. And that sort of helps a, helps a former president go from being a polarizing figure to kind of a bipartisan ex-president instead of a partisan president. And that's a transition that, that Nixon executed very smoothly. I mean, really, given, given the choices that he made in the White House and the way that he left the White House, he probably had the highest degree of difficulty just about anybody. But he was able to sort of use books and use the periods of, of silence around those books to to reshape his image and, and to find a way to, to still have an influence on, on American the American conversation and the American way of life. It's uh you know it, it's it's really interesting to think about his presidential memoirs, which were very hotly protested. One of one of my favorite discoveries while working on this book was just the backlash to Nixon's memoirs. Mm-hmm. And there was a group that started selling shirts that said don't buy books by crooks oh, and those shirts became really popular. And it ended with John Belushi wearing one of those shirts on Saturday Night Live. So, you know, you had Nixon's memoirs being sold everywhere after he got millions of dollars as an advance. And you had this kind of countercultural protest saying, you know, this guy's already done enough to America. Let's not let him make money on top of it. And it's a fascinating moment that, again, it's a small moment that if you're writing a biography of Nixon, there are more important stories to tell. But you can see in the book the really the human side of him. And, and I think that's why I enjoyed writing this book so much and what I hope readers take away from it, that whether it's Kennedy, whether it's Lincoln, whether it's Nixon, when you see a president sitting down to write, you can really see the human side of them. Because writing, whether you're doing it by yourself or doing it with a ghostwriter, it, it forces you to slow down because you have to say exactly what you mean to say. It's a lot different than speaking extemporaneously. And so when presidents slow down and sort of reflect – that's when their biggest ambitions start to creep in. That's when their biggest fears start to creep in. And so in my book, I, t- I tried to talk about those books, but I also tried to go behind the scenes and sort of tell the, you know, the, the, the hidden stories behind those books. And I, and I hope that combination really can reveal something about presidents that even people who've read lots about these presidents mm-hmm. might not know. I certainly have always enjoyed Nixon's books, going back to Six Crises and then his post-resignation mm-hmm. books really – the memoirs, though, are mammoth. They take a while to get through, but really interesting. Sure. And I will say, as uh, as the former director of the George W. Bush Library Museum, his book, Decision Points, and Mrs. Bush's book, too, were really, really good. And I think, as you say, show the human side of them mm-hmm. and what was behind um, what has become history now. So let, let's totally, totally agree. I think decision points is, is a really, it was a really fine. I mean, it, it's definitely his side of history. You know, mm-hmm. the nine 11 chapter, for instance, uh, makes claims that, that people who disagree with him about the CIA intelligence would, would point out. But at the same time, you know, of course, a president's version of history, Grant's version of history was his version of history. And what makes decision points such a gripping read in that nine 11 chapter is where he says, you know, this is where I was when I heard, this is my first fear. This is yeah. I was trying to get a hold of Laura, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it, it really makes it a, a fine book, and it's one that I, I recommend. Not, not all modern presidential memoirs are, are great reads, but I think Decision Points <laughs> is a really good one. Yeah. Who were some of the best and more challenged presidential writers? We'll get into that right after this reminder. To drop us a note at AmericanPOTUS.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We want to hear what suggestions you might have for future episodes. Kind of like our own political focus group, sort of. Thanks for supporting the podcast. President Obama's book is out. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on it? And I know in Author-in-Chief you talk about his earlier works, Dreams of My Father and the, uh, the Audacity of Hope. 
and how those contributed to a successful run for the White House. So could you comment on that? And, and lastly, still on Obama, you talk about his reading habits and how they helped shape him as a person and politician. I'll talk a little bit about Obama's kind of earlier books and then, and then mm-hmm. sort of comment on, on his, his newest one at the end, because it's, it's, you know, he's, he's the person who sort of inspired me to dig into this just because he was somebody who clearly cared about books. And, and I think you can see that in, in so many ways where you examine his life. It, it, it's really hard to overstate how literary he is. You know, a president like Nixon clearly loved history, would read lots of biography. That's true of Bill Clinton. That's true of George W. Bush famously having those reading contests with Karl Rove. Mm-hmm. There've been a lot of presidents who like to read history, but, but Obama was something, something different. He was somebody who, cared about books in a literary way and like to read fiction and like to read novels. Um, one of the stories I tell in my book was of, a, of somebody who worked at an independent bookstore in Hyde Park in Chicago. And this person was out in the mid-90s kind of walking along and he saw a name on a, on a yard sign for somebody writing for state senate. And he's like, where do I know that name? I know I've heard that. It's kind of a weird name, Obama. Where have I heard that? And he's like, oh, yeah, that's the guy who's always in the bookstore so much. And he had just <laughs> seen Obama sign so many credit card receipts that that name was sort of lodged in the back of his mind. And now all of a sudden this guy's running for political office. Um, but that, I mean, that shows how much this kind of reading and writing saturated Obama's life. And Dreams from My Father, I think, is, you know, a really fascinating book. And it was an important book for, for Obama sort of figuring out himself. He lost his first book deal for that. The book almost never came out. He was really late on the book. He wrote way too much of it, and they had to cut it down. Um, that's true of a lot of writers, but I think that the reason that that happened for Obama is that he was sort of you know, processing his own ideas and his own family history and sort of figuring out where did he fit in in the modern American story. Mm-hmm. And the, that's a fun story on its own, I think. You know, Telling that story in my book, it, it tells you something about his character and his commitment to writing. But also, once he figured that story out, I believe it was essential for him then figuring out his political story and his political message. If you look at the way he talked about Dreams from My Fathers when it came out in 1995, you know, it wasn't a big bestseller, so there aren't even that many reviews and interviews to talk about. But when he would talk about it in interviews, he would say things like, well, hopefully my story of having a very fractured family and a multiracial family, the way we were all able to come together and work together through hard work and hope, hopefully that can inspire other people. And it, it's almost verbatim the language he used in his famous 2004 speech at the convention, where he again said, you know, there are no red states, there are no blue states, we can all come together as the United States. Mm-hmm. So when Obama figured out what his own life meant to him, that was sort of where he figured out what politics meant to him and the kind of message he could offer to, mm-hmm. to political life. So it's an example of a book that didn't just sell a lot of copies, but also the putting together of it really forced him, like I said, to slow down and kind of figure out what he believed and what he stood for. Where it gets interesting, though, is is the question of, you know, this book mattered to him running for the White House and this literary approach helped him get to the White House. But did it serve him well once he was in the White House? And I started thinking this way because of another lecture, actually, from Woodrow Wilson, another very famous and literary president. And when Wilson was still a professor, he gave this lecture called Leaders of Men. And he talked about there's two kinds of people who can change the world. There's men who write and men who act. And so the men who write are, of course, writers who specialize in looking for complexity and who, you know, want to understand the motives of individual characters, the novelists and the literary writers who can really focus in on on those kinds of questions. And then there's politicians, men who act, and they don't want complexity. They want a simple message that they can really push. They want something they can fight for. They don't want to, you know, have empathy to understand a bunch of different characters 
what they want to have is they want to have something that can appeal to masses. And so Wilson's take was that these two mindsets can't really be reconciled. You can be somebody who's, you know, a literary person, or you can be somebody who's a political person. But to bring those two together, it doesn't really work because they just see the world in fundamentally different ways. And I thought that that made a lot of sense. And I think it also makes a lot of sense in Obama's life, because the literary skills, as, as I've already talked about, they were essential to him getting to the White House. And, and it really was in literature that he learned these ideas, you know, no red states, no blue states. You know, we need to, in, in Audacity of Hope, he talks about having empathy for George W. Bush, those kinds of things that we associate with Obama. He didn't learn that at Harvard Law School. He learned that reading books. But were those the best skills once he got to the White House? And then he had to deal with, you know, a Republican Party that was very unified in its opposition to, to his beliefs. Is having that kind of literary mindset that, that seeks for complexity and, and um, you know, tries to make things um, as, as, mm-hmm. as um, nuanced as possible, is that the best approach when you're trying to fight a partisan warfare? I, I don't think it is. And I think that that's a really interesting question to keep in mind. You know, Obama's skills as a writer were so important in getting to him in the White House, but maybe they caused him some of the trouble that, you know, at least from the liberal perspective, the complaints that, that people on the left had about Obama, I think can, can be traced to the same mindset that led to his wonderful books. But I, that, that's a pretty complicated answer, which I guess oh, no, says that I'm a literary person, not a political person. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's your next your next book, Craig, right there. And, yeah, there we go. And you can see parallels, certainly, in the political battles that Wilson and Obama fought. Uh, so that's a very interesting sure. parallel, yeah. So I want to, before we run out of time, I want to note your terrific book. You edited it. Scott mentioned the best presidential writing from 1789 to the present. You give examples, often many examples, of the writings of every president. So how did you make the selections in the best presidential writing? Well, I started with kind of, you know, what are some of my favorites that people might not necessarily know? So the Wilson lecture we were just talking about, you know, about men who write versus men who act. There's a big excerpt from that in there. Or Reagan's Where's the Rest of Me? That book's been out of print. It's pretty hard to find at this point, but I included some of the best pages from that. So I really wanted to find some of the things that people might not necessarily know, but that were really revealing or interesting or fascinating. But then I also didn't just want that. I also wanted the kind of greatest hits, you know, Ask Not, or, you know, The Only Thing to Fear is Fear Itself, or Four Score and Seven Years Ago. I I wanted those moments in there. And as I started to put together the table of contents, what I really liked about it is that combination of sort of overlooked personal documents, but also, you know, the big speeches that, that helped change America you really got the story of America. You know, there's Andrew Jackson talking about Native Americans and, and, you know, his policy towards them. Or there's Thomas Jefferson talking about slavery. But there's also George Washington talking about how America needs to set itself apart from Europe. And then there's Ulysses S. Grant talking about the 15th Amendment and, and how that, you know, allows black men the right to vote. And who does he cite in that speech? Well, he cites George Washington's farewell address to kind of, you know, bolster his Grant's case for, for that amendment. And I just found so many of those connections, and I hope readers find it too. It's, it's. I really feel like it's the story of America, except instead of me telling it, it's the presidents themselves telling it. It's one of those times where you just want to get out of the way and, and sort of let their words resonate. And the other thing I think that's really cool here is it, it's a reminder of how much of the presidency itself is carried out through words. There are so many speeches in there where you can kind of see presidents sort of, you know, taking a little bit more power. You have I include one of Jefferson's State of the Union addresses where he, you know, delegates a lot of power to the states. And on big issues, he's like, well, we'll, you know, the states can figure that out for themselves. The states are the primary form of government. 
obviously that begins to change. And so when Wilson is president, he delivers the State of the Union himself in person and, and sort of begins to, to grab more and more power for himself and for the executive branch, a process that had started with Teddy Roosevelt before him. And then you get to, you know, Lyndon Johnson and, and other presidents who are now going on television. Kennedy is another great example and, and grabbing even more power for themselves. And so when you read these speeches, you can kind of see how the presidency goes from sort of a, a deferential office where the legislature sort of took precedent in the early years of American life and the states even more so to today when the presidency is, is the center of everything. And for as much as Obama and Trump disagree about, uh, you know, everything, the one thing they agree on is that <laughs> the, the White House dictates policy and, and really dictates the shape of American life right now. But it wasn't always that way. And the way that that changed was through words and the words that presidents spoke. And so I hope in reading my book, people can kind of see presidents sort of talking about all the big moments in American life, but also sort of defining their own role and expanding their own role. One of my favorite passages that you had in there was when uh, Harry Truman writing about when he found out that FDR had passed away and just how mm-hmm. that all went down. Those are what presidential memoirs do the best, I think. We were talking about Bush's on 9-11 and kind of like what 9-11 felt like to him. And that's Truman saying, you know, this is what it felt like to have a president dying and realizing all of a sudden, oh, oh my goodness, I'm the person in charge. And it's not just that that happened. It's as soon as he finds that, he has his cabinet meeting. Everybody leaves except one person stays behind and begins briefing him on the atomic bomb. And so to have that kind of first-person account, that's what presidential memoirs do best. And unfortunately, they sometimes don't do enough of that. and, and they should probably do more, but that, that's why I hope that the, the anthology will be useful to people is that I, I kind of tried to grab the best bit. So you don't have to read 1,400 pages of Harry Truman. You can get the best five pages. And, uh, you know, if you want to read more, by all means, go out and track down his other books. But this is still a good place to start and to, and to see those important moments in American history. Well, Craig, we'd like to give our listeners a look into the personal side of these presidential authors. How about a few quick-fire questions? Let's, let's do it. I'll, I'll try to not be like a president and be concise. <laughs> <laughs> Which president would you single out as the most talented and effective writer? Probably Lincoln. Um, I just think that, you know, not, not just the phrases that stick in memory, but he also had the highest degree of difficulty. He was writing at a time when he had to worry about a lot of different audiences, and he was... Yeah. He was the one who, you know, used words in a way that, that kept the nation together in the end. Of all the presidential authors, who was the wittiest? John Adams. Really? Uh, his, yeah, I think so. He, I often think that John Adams should have had a Twitter account. Because <laughs> his, with his books, he would struggle with the big picture, like the structure or the pacing. That's not always the best thing for John Adams. But in terms of line by line, you know, if he's if you want somebody to insult insult Thomas Paine, <laughs> there's nobody better than John Adams because he's got great zingers. And even on his personal life, I, I included some of his autobiography and best presidential writing. And he talks about sort of, you know, as a teenager, beginning to notice girls. And he's like, I, I just want to urge my children that you don't have to worry about any like half brothers or sisters out there. Like, yes, I like girls, but I was able to, <laughs> I was able to follow the Puritan path. And so that's, I mean, Adams is just deeply funny, even sometimes without intending to be. Of all the presidents, who would you say was the most natural writer who required the least amount of training or help to be an author? I guess I'm going to be like a president here and duck the question a little bit because I, I don't think that that applies to any of them. I, I like one of the big takeaways for me is how hard they worked. Grant read so much 
fiction growing up. And I really think that that's one reason Personal Memoirs is a good book, because he's really good at describing other people. He's really good at describing characters, and that comes from reading fiction. Or Coolidge is a, is a really underrated writer, and he's kind of the, the unsung hero, I think, of both of these books. But he was somebody who would copy out Benjamin Franklin by hand as a young, as a child, and, and you know, learned how to be a good writer from studying people like Benjamin Franklin and Lincoln. So honestly, I think, I don't think natural writers exist. I think the presidents who wrote well did so because they cared about words and, and studied the words of others. Which president was the most reluctant to put pen to paper? Well, there were a few of them, but I'd say George H.W. Bush comes to mind because he's, you know, yeah. we've talked about how from Harry Truman on, there's this tradition and there's millions of dollars to, to, to put a book out. And George H.W. Bush never wrote a traditional autobiography. I just don't think he was uh, a particularly bookish person, which is, has no bearing on what kind of president he was at all. I don't mean that disparagingly. I just mean that he was not someone who was a, an avid reader the way his son was and, um, and thus was not an avid writer. So, you know, he, he could have made billions of dollars if he just had somebody else write a book under his name, but he didn't even want to do that. Past or present, which POTUS would I most likely see in a bookstore looking for something interesting to read? Well, I think, well, if we're going to go corners, there's four corners, and I can think of four, <laughs> okay. four okay. presidents who this would apply to. That's, it's uh, it, it, either Jefferson, John Quincy Adams, who, who we haven't really talked about today, but there's some really good stuff in my books about him and how much he wanted to be a writer. Um, Lincoln, of course, or Obama. I think those are the, there have been a lot of presidents who cared about books, but those four sort of stand apart and just, it has no reflection on whether they were good presidents or not, just in terms of their love of books and, and the, the way books meant something to them personally. Jefferson, John Quincy Adams, Lincoln, and Obama are kind of in their own class. Well, Craig, it's been a real delight speaking with you today on American POTUS. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, and uh, thanks for great, thoughtful questions. I don't think anybody's asked me about the Jefferson book, the, the kind of four volumes before you, before you all. So that's one of my favorite parts in my book, so I was thrilled to be able to talk about that. It shows, you know, people, Americans have loved to read about presidents from the very beginning. The American POTUS podcast is produced by the National Museum of American Presidents. Graphic design by the Thought Bureau. An original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us a note at AmericanPOTUS.com or stop by our social pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Abraham Lincoln, quote, Writing, the art of communicating thoughts to the mind through the eye, is the great invention of the world, enabling us to converse with the dead, the absent, and the unborn at all distances of time and space.